Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'll bet that uh, you probably thought there was no podcast from here in the salon last week because I was at Burning Man. But if that's uh, what you thought, uh, well, then you'd be wrong because what I did was to take the week off. Uh, Well, kind of anyway, and I'll get back to that after we hear the uh, next installment of uh, the Terrence McKenna workshop that we've been listening to. And uh, anyway, while I was... uh, planning on getting this podcast out yesterday. Instead, I had a pleasant surprise in that an old friend who I hadn't seen in many years uh, stopped by on his way home from Burning Man, and so we spent the day catching up and uh, hearing about this year's burn. And uh, now, at last, I'm ready to get a new program out to you today. First, however, I would like to thank the following fellow saloners who, during the past two weeks, took some of their time and some of their money and sent it here to the salon to help with the expenses associated in getting these podcasts out to you. And these wonderful people are Robert A., Harley D., Bruce C., Kevin M., Joseph H., (laughs) and uh, that name, of course, reminds me of my dad, uh, who is another Joseph H., Uh, Also, Simon T., and way back on my birthday last month, there was also an anonymous Bitcoin donor. So, I would like to thank you one and all uh, very much. It's your generosity that's going to help make the Psychedelic Salon 2.0 become an important platform for our community to use for many years to come. And uh, I'll have more to say about the future of the salon after we first listen to the next installment of a Terrence McKenna workshop that was held in August of 1997. First of all, if if you didn't get one of these and you think you might be interested in this ethnobotany, ethnochemistry course at Ukshmal in January, I brought extras. It does tend to sell out. So by uh, October, November, you should be pretty much uh, making a commitment. We can only take a hundred people in each one, and uh, and people sometimes say, "Well, which one should I go to? The first one or the second one?" I don't know. It's a hard call. The first one, everybody is pretty fresh and and uh, coherent. The second one <laughs> tends to be somewhat more um, um, uh, not fresh, not fresh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. thrashed <laughs> and incoherent. Uh, so, and and if you do come. You should certainly, if you've never done it, build in a week one side or the other of this to tour the Mayan areas of Mexico, which are immediately adjacent. If you haven't done that, it's one of the great archaeological experiences of the world. I mean, nowhere in the world is there so large a concentration of archaeology on such a scale and in such a state of preservation, not Greece, not Egypt, uh, I mean, uh, simply because the size of the Mayan world was immense and there were many, many city centers and it, you know, was extremely historically persistent. 
people compare the Maya to the Inca. The Inca, that was a family. The entire thing lasted 135 years. The Mayan civilization arose in the second century BC and blew apart in the 960s AD. So for over a thousand years, uh, it, it, it was uh, a continuously evolving culture with literature, theater, mathematics, uh, lineages, so forth and so on. So don't, uh, don't just come to Mexico for this. Uh, Mexico is an astonishing and bizarre culture, as exotic as India, as potentially as undoing as Iraq. So uh, be forewarned, but have fun down there. Here's another piece of propaganda. I, I don't think I have enough for everybody to have one of these. So if you don't think you might be in Hawaii in November, uh, it would be very hard for you to attend this, since that's where it's occurring. Uh, but this is an event. This is this is a whole bunch of people, a course, great diversity. This would just be me for for five days. Uh, the perks are you get to stay in a Frank Lloyd Wright house uh, in Waimea, which is a beautiful part of the Big Island. So if you think you might be interested, take one of these. Otherwise, pass it on. If there are any not used, you can hand them back to me. Um, okay. And then before we start this morning, I just wanted to, it's sort of become a ritual at these things, to briefly discuss relevant new publishing in the field, just to give people a feeling of what's out there that... Uh, they might not be aware of. So much is being published that without some kind of vetting, it's hard to know what's what's what. So in no particular order, I guess from smallest to largest, uh, here's some interesting new publishing relevant to this field. First of all, uh, this book is just out in England by Paul Devereaux, The Long Trip. A Prehistory of Psychedelica. And uh, it just arrived in Paul's mailbox a couple of days ago, and he loaned it to me. It looks to me like basically uh, a history of psychedelic use worldwide before the 1960s. Paul Devereaux is uh, better known for writing on uh, earth energies, ley lines, and that sort of thing. But this, uh, this seems like a pretty good book. So few of these books come out that, you know, the number of books that have been written on the history of psychedelics are probably, you can count them on the finger of one hand. M my book, uh, Food of the Gods, is in that category. It's available in the bookstore. So, I should say, are most of my books, and I'd be happy to sign books at some point not after this morning, because I have to run out of here to a meeting, but at other times I'll be happy to sign books. Um, trying to think of other books besides this one and mine that cover this area. It's mostly, strangely, the publishing seems to be coming out of England on this subject, which is odd because 
the English contribution to the psychedelic phenomenon is pretty much restricted to the musical division. Speaking of the 60s, in other words, who can name a great English pharmacologist? Storming Heaven, that's an oldie, yeah, that's by uh, Jay Stevens, and uh, that's a very interesting history of the psychedelic movement. There's also LSD, the CIA, and the cult, mm-hmm. Acid Dreams, Acid LSD, the CIA, and the Cult of Intelligence, is that what it's called? Yeah. Anyway, that's a more, if you if you tend toward conspiracy <laughs> theory, I mean... I don't. I everything I know Martin Lee that book is is quite true. Generally conspiracy theory is a form of epistemological cartoon making that comes under the heading of simply damned foolishness uh, and a ticket to irresponsibility. Um, you know the real news is no one's in control. <laughs> not the central bank, not the Jews, not the Communist Party, not the Pope. No, no. Nobody's in control. Um, this is a, a book that's come out just in the past year, edited by Bob Forte. Some of you may know Bob. He's a longtime figure in this field, psychedelic activist and uh, literature. And this is a bunch of essays by some of the better some of the top folks. Um, the title is Entheogens and the Future of Religion. And some of the contributors are Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD and the synthesizer of psilocybin, Gordon Wasson, our own brother David Stendelrast, who's lived and taught at Esalen many years, Jack Kornfeld, myself, Anne and Sasha Shulgin, uh, and then some of the younger people, Robert Jesse and uh, Tom Reidlinger, uh, Rick Strassman. Very interesting book, probably a good, uh, a good buy for the money. I don't know if this is in the bookstore. It certainly is should be. Is the book deal with be. the future of religion, or is that kind of the title? Uh, no, it does. It, people, some people discuss it more cogently than others, obviously, but it, it doesn't escape notice. Uh, this is a book more to be read for fun than to be taken seriously. I disagree with a lot of what's in here, but on the other hand, I've never seen this kind of stuff in print before. Again... What's going on in England? I don't know. While HarperCollins is chewing itself up here and Wired is going mad, English publishing seems to be getting some traction. Uh, The Post-Human Condition by Robert Pepperell. And this is sort of a parallel track to some of my thinking. If you cruise the net, you encounter uh, people who call themselves transhumanists or extopians or this sort of thing. These are not psychedelic people. These are people with an enormously inflated uh, faith in the power of human engineering. So these are the people who you know, want to dissolve humans into machines, build ring worlds, go nanotech, uh, you know, that end of the big picture. And uh, 
Pepperell actually tries to produce what he calls a post-human manifesto, which is printed in the back as a series of statements. And actually, as I read through them, I disagree with most of them. I don't think that's how it's going at all. But uh, this, this is sort of like a, a, an introduction to somebody's notion of the approaching chaostrophy. So that's that. And then the one which gives me the greatest pleasure to recommend to you, a book actually unambiguously worth buying, reading, and recommending, is uh, Mason and Dixon, Mm. which is Thomas Pynchon's latest novel, potential, certainly probably the greatest, the best novel written in America in the past 50 years. I mean, Pynchon is the greatest living writer of American English. I wasn't sure about that till Wednesday, but Burroughs died, so it appears secure. Uh, if you've never read Pynchon, uh, I hardly... N- I wonder where you've been. But uh, uh, his novel, I guess, was it 17 or 20 years ago, Gravity's Rainbow, really codified a whole complex of social and aesthetic issues. This is a much different book. I mean, it's vintage pension, but it's also a celebration of America and of the buddy system. And it's a scathing look at the embryonic birth of big science and big government projects. Uh, As you know, Mason and Dixon were... uh, an astronomer and a surveyor who accepted a royal commission to define the boundary between Pennsylvania and Delaware in the 1760s and cut a line due west into the unexplored North American continent. Later, that line called the Mason-Dixon line was the division between the Confederacy and the Union. This has nothing to do with the Confederacy of the Union. This is set in the 1760s when America itself was simply a caffeine-driven hallucination in Philadelphia. It hadn't come into existence yet. But uh, this book is about how people struggle with new technologies and revolutionary modalities in... Uh, in uh, the evolution of society. So, enough of that. Uh, okay. Well, hopefully, um, some of what was said last night either was odious enough that someone would like to pull us in a different direction or perhaps to somebody else interesting enough that they would like to ask a question what comes for you from last night, anybody? As I said, these things are best driven by people's agendas. What's your agenda, Nicholas? Well, what, I was, what I thought about, or one of the things that made me think for a while after I left and as I went in and out of sleep was the idea of artificial intelligence and what determines what is artificial, what is non-artificial intelligence what kind of definition 
would, would define that, you know, in a sense. Because my understanding of intelligence and consciousness being kind of a, a, a similar thing, depending upon how one defines intelligence, um, what is artificial? If it's conscious and intelligent, isn't it as real as anything else? Well, I'm sure, as some of you may know, that this issue arose early in AI. How do you know an artificial intelligence when you're talking to one? And uh, Alan Turing, who was a theorist of cybernetics in the 40s, developed what he called the Turing test, T-U-R-I-N-G, the Turing test. The Turing test is uh, if it walks like a duck, if it talks like a duck, it probably is a duck. And the Turing test is always imagined as a telephone conversation. I tell you to dial a number. You dial a number. A voice on the other end says, hello. Now the Turing test begins. Your job is to determine whether you are talking to a machine or a human being. If you can't determine it, it, it is an a, the a, and it is an AI, then it's passed the Turing test. And uh, this was in the 40s and 50s a theoretical proposition. Now these tests, these things are actually done, and every year there are competitions where this is precisely how the game is played. And now it turns out that the more you restrict the subject matter, the harder it is to tell whether you're talking to a human being or a machine. Uh, if, if it's no holds barred general knowledge, most people can, f within a few minutes, make a pretty good call. Uh, but uh, intelligence is the are in the eye of the beholder. I mean, how do you know that I am not a cyborg? How do I know that you are not a cyborg? The answer is, well, we, we Turing test each other unconsciously at sufficient depth to satisfy ourselves. Uh, it's, it becomes moot, uh, or it is becoming moot. Uh, Big Blue is an example. You know, in terms of playing chess, it can, it can pass any Turing test you can imagine. But as soon, it, but it can't even formulate an answer to a non-chess question. So it's a it's a very domain-specific AI, and really not an AI because it, it's simply the world of chess. Chess is not like reality. Chess is a very high variable game system, but it doesn't have the open-endedness that reality has. You see, in really interesting games, the most interesting rule is that the rules can be changed. And chess doesn't have a rule like that. Did you want to say something? Could you continue your comment on cloning? Yeah, I read in the New York Times yesterday they, they've got some embryos about to be birthed in the Midwest, ten types of Holstein cattle. Cloning, 
is one of those things. See, there's a whole bunch of revolutions all crowding onto the stage. The one that holds center stage at the moment is the cybernetic internet thing. But somewhat completely independent of all that is the biotech possibility, which is uh, cloning, gene sequencing, uh, getting a tremendous grip on curing hereditary diseases, that sort of thing. Uh, and then another area not enti entirely connected or related is nanotechnology which is proceeding at breakneck speed. And the public relations machinery for telling the public what this is isn't even in place. You meet people f who are fairly established in their professions or whatever who don't know what nanotechnology is, who in fact have never heard of it. I don't know if there's anybody in this room in that situation. Uh, and after what I said, it would take courage to admit it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, nanotechnology is simply the idea that uh, one can't, could conceivably, theoretically, build in a, uh, the physical superstructure of our world in a completely different way from the atoms up. This is how nature does it through processes of uh, rib uh, transcription of protein through ribosome or crystallization or this sort of thing. Uh, nanotechnology is envisions the possibility of abandoning agriculture on this planet within 20 years. Uh, agriculture is, after all, an incredibly land-destructive process for the production of food. Uh, what we want is the food. The food could be produced directly out of um, available and extremely inexpensive elements. Seafloor sludge is the usual uh, uh, notion of how this is done. What the the holy grail of nanotechnology is what's called a matter compiler. A matter compiler does to matter what an SGI graphics system does to images. In other words, anything you can imagine. Out of matter compilers come, uh, in the case of agriculture, in in Neil. Uh, Stephenson's book, uh, The Diamond Age, all of China is being fed out of, nan of, out of matter compilers that are producing rice. Uh, and people say, well, this is hundreds of years away, thousands of years away. It's pure science fiction. No, it isn't. It's, it's happening right now. And producing rice is a simple trick. Uh, what's imagined is that uh, all kinds of machines of whatever complexity could become nearly invisible in size and nearly costless. Uh, most things would be made of diamond. This is the trash material of nanotechnology. It's just simpler to build things out of diamond than anything else. Cheaper, faster, cleaner. Um, 
and the, the huge amounts of R&D funding and enthusiasm are going into, into nanotechnology. And an interesting thing about it is it is not, uh, it's not really being driven by managerial decisions. The reason nanotech is moving so fast is because all the best people think it's so cool to do it. You know, I mean, electric dynamos where you can fit 60 of them inside a human hair. Uh, a few years, a few years ago, this is how far nanotechnology has developed. Like three or four years ago, on the cover of Science News, there was a one centimeter by one centimeter chip that had 10,000 steam engines on it. It had more steam engines operating on it in this one centimeter by one centimeter space than were operating in all of England in 1850 at the height of the age of steam. Now, each of these steam engines produced one ten-thousandth of a millinewton of torque. Uh, that's not a lot of torque, but on the other hand, it depends on what kind of work you're trying to do. If you're trying to kick atoms around, that's plenty uh, of force. To, to return to the cloning thing, I, I'm sort of thinking of novels these days or short stories or plots and uh, I, I thought it would be fun to imagine uh, uh, a joint project between Esalen Institute and uh, SRI let's say uh, that would reach for and this was to be the name of the novel cloning Buddha I thought that would be interesting. I mean, why should the next Dalai Lama be anyone less than Gautama? After all, we have the tooth, so uh, there is presumably sufficient tissue there, and we're not talking pterosaurs here. I mean, this is only 500 BC, and the interesting objections to cloning are some of them are removed in the case of Buddha, because people say, well, you know, even if you cloned Napoleon, it wouldn't be Napoleon because Napoleon was a product of a unique uh, environmental and social system and he was the product of the experiences of his lifetime. But presumably Buddha was born Buddha. And so uh, it would be very interesting to clone Buddha and to see what this uh, child uh, was like. This is not a practical suggestion. This is to horrify and amuse you and to make you think about the implications. I mean, we could, there are other historical personages. I love the theological mess it raises, you know. The cloning of Buddha. I think it's called Maitreya. Well, no, no. The the Christians covered their bets on this one by having the body rise incarnate into the next dimension. Presumably, there are no uh, tissue remains around. Although, you know, in a good Jesuit uh, theology class, I'm sure you could get argument on this. You know, one of the great puzzles of Islamic theology 
uh, is the fact that when when Muhammad ascended into heaven, he did it on horseback, and uh, the status of this horse, his beloved horse, who he loved very much, it has been maddening for Islamic theologians ever since. I mean, you know, if you think. Uh, the Immaculate Conception is a problem. Try taking a horse into heaven and see what problems you leave for your exegetes. But the problems were compounded in the 60s when Trigger went up there. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> uh, actually, there are, there are a number of shrines that claim to have part of Christ's foreskin. Oh, yeah, the Christ foreskin thing. It didn't go, you know, it was circumcised. Well, this is material for a Tom Robbins novel. Uh, definitely, I would yield to Tom on that one. Um, but cloning all of these things, I mean, I, I will happen, are happening. I don't think they're... They, the implications of them seem overblown in popular media. For instance, I'm old enough to remember... Uh, I don't know if it was the very first, but one, the very first publicly discussed and acclaimed sex change operations. Christina Jorgensen, wasn't that the person's name? I can't remember whether they went from man to woman or woman to man, but anyway, uh, this was at what, early 50s? And uh, people just, oh, this is more. Well, now it's just so what? You know, it's a dime a dozen. It's a medical procedure. You want it, you have it. Who cares? We don't convene medical ethics committees or philosophy, philosophers to discuss uh, what it means. Uh, some, some technologies are more challenging. The ones that directly impact our consciousness I think that's why the drugs and the, and the communication technologies, they're, you know, cloning is something you will talk about with your friends. It will probably never come near you, or you'll probably have very little to do with it in your lifetime. But these, these communication technologies and these drugs are in your face, on your plate. You know, you are going to uh, have to come to terms with them, even if you reject them. Even that is an enormous decision. I mean, I meet people who are who are rejecting the internet and and computer connectivity and this sort of thing, and it's it's like a vow of abstinence or something. I mean, they're because that's very quirky. It's like going orthodox or something. It's just bizarre, and it will affect their lives for the duration of their lives. And it's not easy to correct that decision because it's a decision made in a historical context. If you ignore computers for 10 years, you will probably never be able to get back online. Middle-aged people seem to have the feeling that there is no obligation upon them to self-educate and keep up. This is completely wrong. You just stamp yourself to utter irrelevance. Uh, your rejection of these things will impact on no one's life but your own. So if you're doing it to be a 
politically correct example, you're pissing into the wind, I fear. People aren't interested in that. Point of clarification something topic you brought up last night. Before I get into that, I'd just like to say that um, I, I, I thought that was interesting about cloning Buddha. Maybe this time uh, the Buddha won't make uh, ignorant statements about what Americans can do in their bedroom, about masturbation and about homosexuality, uh, like the Dalai Lama did, very uh, ignorant and uncompassionate since he said it in San Francisco. When was this? Um, a couple, uh, three, oh, I guess it was a month ago, there was a conference in San Francisco, and he had added against uh, homosexualities and what was uh, sexual misconduct and what wasn't masturbation was sexual misconduct. What and he went into what holes you can put it in and what holes you can't. And he didn't qualify it. Uh, that wasn't Buddha. Well, wait a minute. But, but is, this, is, is this past the vetting of consensus reality, or has Barry been sniffing angel dust? Did this happen? It's part of my job. Well, I'm just surprised there hasn't been more discussion in the dining room well, here. I haven't heard. This is the first time hearing it. This is real time, folks. There was a lot of, was a lot of discussion, and a, 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 I think some act up people and other people met with him after his spokesman, and he kind of tried to back off and said, "Well, oh no, I would never say anything against gay rights." But uh, he had it, have it pointed out to him that it was a rather uncompassionate thing to, to say about homosexuality, given the, the climate of fear and, and uh, homophobia in this country right now. Hmm. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I like the Dalai Lama. I'm friendly to Mahayana Buddhism, but I think it's preposterous for anybody to assume anybody else possesses greater moral superiority or intellectual depth than they do. Uh, the Dalai Lama has been remarkable for his ability to not put his foot in his mouth. Uh, it's interesting that it comes in this form and that we don't, you know, it's not the usual case of philandering and whatever that seems to haunt these communities. I mean, I think religion in its public manifestations always presents a cautionary spectacle. Uh, I do not understand why people transfer loyalty to role models you have to be incredibly naive about what people are to believe that a role model is in fact worthy because you know people are just people and uh, there's no uh, I, I don't see great differences in spiritual elevation among people that's why lineages and all that seem to me just another form of foolishness. The mushroom spoke to me once on this subject many years ago and said for one human being to seek enlightenment from another is like one grain of sand on the beach to seek enlightenment from another. It's a wonderful statement about our commonality. If you want to talk to the Dalai Lama Close the door of your bedroom and have a dialogue with the mirror. You're as good as the Dalai Lama, for crying out loud. Uh, who could suppose otherwise? Well, in and, and, and his particular case, it seems to me he's the representative 
for a middle ages serfdom where a third of the population of his country walk around in saffron robes being fed by another half of this of the uh, people of his country and and it's and uh, we, we goodness you lock out the psychotherapists and heresy after heresy <laughs> pours out <laughs> congratulations no no, I, I, I mean, I think, I think Tibet should not be ruled by China. I also think that uh, uh, God kings are a thing of the past. I'm against religious theogonies. I don't want to see Israel ruled by a bunch of mumbling Hasids either. Uh, this, it's fine, Hasidism, Mahayana Buddhism. These are fine things, but not to aspire to temporal power. Good grief. So, you know, the Dalai Lama's reluctance to envision a democratic Tibet has caused me to not feel a lot of wind at my back to try and sort out that particular political catfight uh, which has been going on for centuries and centuries. Uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, a Jeffersonian Democrat of some sort. I really believe that uh, if it doesn't liberate and serve the individual, no matter how attractive it is, no matter how traditional it is, no matter how majestic its pageants, how high-flown its philosophy, it's probably a foot on somebody's neck in the real world. And I'm not interested... uh, uh, in that, well, this is very interesting. I don't want to. I don't. I'm not informed in it, but I'll bet it's really rolling the apple cart in all kinds of places. Some of you may have seen uh, in Tricycle a few months ago. There was uh, Alan Bediner, who just lives down on the cliffs here. In fact, who I'm having lunch with uh, is a l- very sincere Buddhist and a good journalist and he took on the editing of a psychedelic issue of tricycle well let me lay it out it, it was uh, it's well known that many of the movers and shakers in american buddhism had their roots in psychedelics in the 60s and uh, And so he wanted to sort of reprise that, and I did an essay, and some other people did essays. And I really looked forward to it and thought it would be a a warm community building. This shows you how naive and the depth of my cynicism, there is still a grain of naivete. I thought it would be a good thing. Well... Was they just dissed completely, just dumped on by all these people, and people wrote in who I have seen loaded out of their <laughs> minds and said, you know, this is terrible and this shouldn't be there. And I said, Buddhism without psychedelics is armchair Buddhism. How can you possibly know anything about these modalities if you sit there shastras to the eyebrows and never actually push off into the ocean of mind? That's what it's about. That's how I've always seen it. Turned out people thought that was just benighted 
as a viewpoint shouldn't have even been allowed. Why do you let Terence McKenna have a public forum in the pages of this magazine? <laughs> on and on and on. So then I realized, well, okay, this was a community just won over from our community that I thought we could surely build bridges to. We're tr all transcendentalists. We're all, you know, all these things. Not. So once again, it was handed back to me on a plate how unwelcome the psychedelic viewpoint is and how uptight people get. And uh, all those people who came to spirituality through psychedelics essentially turned it into well-paying careers as abbesses and monks and publishers and, and, and purveyors then of something which, you know, having been raised Catholic, the smell of the incense, the heavy velvet, the tinkling of the brass. I didn't feel I'd moved far at all. Uh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. It's an interesting topic, and, and isn't it true that there has been, with the coming of Buddhism into the, even the Vajrayana model, which is pretty pretty radical as far as teachings go in, the, in that mid-year, um, there, there was a suppression of the shamanistic uh, religion and its its psychedelic use. I under, that's what I understood. It's not it wasn't a heavy suppression, but it was pretty much frowned on and tried to be. Well, we don't really know, but it's certainly true. There was an autochthonous shamanism across the Himalayas. Uh, Buddhism didn't enter Tibet until Padmasambhava brought it from Udiana in 741. So before that, it was all um, shamanism. Uh, but all cultures overlay. I mean, I don't think Tibetan is Tibetan Buddhism has been more or less brutal than any other. Uh, if you read the secular history of Tibet, they've been they were using artillery these monasteries against each other to settle doctrinal disputes as early as the 1720s. In other words, as early as they could get artillery there. As soon as they could get it, they used it against each other. And, and, and not only that, the, what the followers of the Dalai Lama, I think you make a good point about blind worship of, of people uh, like the, the Dalai Lama, where no one ever asks him hard questions. Um, it, it's not him, it's, it's, it's kind of mentality you get in the followers. And, and none of them will tell you, I don't even think they know, uh, but if they know, they won't tell you that the, if you ask, how did the Dalai Lama, was, was the Dalai Lama always the, the religious, the spiritual, and the secular uh, or political head of his nation? Oh, I don't know. Well, as a matter of fact, he wasn't. Well, how did he get that way? Oh, we don't know. Well, the way he got that way was the fifth Dalai Lama got the Mongol troops <laughs> on his side and took over at gunpoint. Well, this is what I'm saying. The secular history of Tibet does not exhibit compassion, enlightenment, or anything else. Found a way to go to the other side and get help and bring in and, and heal people with some kind of supernatural ability or, or, or ability beyond me with the bag of mushrooms and the mirror. You mean do people do it without recourse to drugs? Is, no. no. What do Why you mean? Do you, use drugs or don't you, use you mean are there people of special talent and ability? Well, yeah, but I mean, when I say special, I'm talking Special. You mean, are there people who violate the laws of known physics? 
Okay. To heal. I'll take that one. To heal. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you don't have to violate the laws of known physics to heal. Well, I, I, this was really the question that drove my intellectual quest. I, I have always been interested in these things and had a great thirst for spiritual transcendence. But I don't know why. It never made sense to me to believe these things. In other words, though I was raised Catholic and as a tiny little kid introduced to the transubstantiation, the resurrection, the these completely mind-befuddling notions, still I was also exposed to secular science and so my method was always to ask hard questions. What can you show me? Uh, and I, as an 11 to 14 year old, you know, practiced ceremonial magic to no great avail, I, I might add. You know, I had stories by Robert Block and H.P. Lovecraft to make me hope I might get somewhere, but all I ever did was incinerate a lot of rosemary and to, and to alarm my parents. Uh, but I think that this, that, that this question is hard to answer because we're not all living in the same world. Uh, I, I've seen confounding things, but very rarely. But truly they were real. They were so real that I believed them to be real and I'm the toughest nut to crack I've ever met but the these breakthroughs into the trend the super real seem to have certain qualities about them that make it very hard to do much with it first of all it's always unexpected no matter how much you expect it it's unexpected no matter how hard you're scanning it can come from behind uh, the other thing is and I don't quite understand how this works but it only happens when your guard is down in other words um, it, it always has a quality of it always requires a certain quality of unconsciousness on the part of the experience. This is why I think beginners get so far. There really is something called beginner's luck. Uh, I, my daughter, who I haven't seen for a while, is coming today, and uh, it caused me to think of an incident that happened to she and I years ago here at Esalen. And it's a story which makes no sense whatsoever, but it really, truly happened, as far as I can tell. Uh, but it has all the qualities that bedevil this kind of thing. And what it was, was I was, as I am now, scholar in residence. It must have been some 10 years or so, eight years or so ago. So Clea would have been uh, like nine and I would have been 40. So we were both younger and more naive. And uh, we, it, it was uh, dinner time at the lodge, 
and it was this time of year and this time of weather. And the fog had been coming all day in and out in the garden. And uh, it was, and we genuflect here, God love him, to Carlos Castaneda, it was that very strange time of day which only lasts a few minutes between uh, daytime and nighttime, the crack between the world, I believe. It's interesting in, in South America and also in Hawaii, at precisely that moment, every day, there are certain species of Lepidoptera that rearrange themselves. In other words, that come out from wherever they've been hiding for 24 hours, fly around furiously for five minutes, and then disappear again for 24 hours. But anyway, it was precisely that time of day, and the fog was coming in and out of the garden, and we were not in a mood for anything peculiar. We were intent on dinner, and... uh, we were walking the path through the garden and suddenly as this fog moved and cleared coming down one of the rows uh, was a, 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 a bunny a small rabbit except that it, uh, it had uh, very small short horns Now, some of you may know the creature called the jackalope. (laughs) The jackalope is a large jackrabbit with a pair of antelope horns, and it is a creature uh, known only to exist above uh, certain low-class bars scattered across (laughs) California and Oregon. It's up on the wall, the jackalope. It's something you kid tourists with. As far as I could see, uh, this was a baby jackalope about this high, and it it crossed the trail no more than five feet in front of us. We both saw it, and uh, our attitude was not amazement or an awareness that we were entering into a paranormal dimension, Both of us, I think our reaction was, come on. And then immediately behind it was a man, a very thin, not particularly healthy looking man with a shaved head wearing something like a gray running suit. And he was running, crouched. He was with his arm, hands out like this. He was trying to catch the the jackabunny and when he saw us he appeared very confused and stood up and turned and walked the other way and I just took her by the elbow and I said let's get out of here <laughs> and then we went to dinner and we've talked about it immediately after and since and as far as anybody can reasonably and decently tell, this is the straight story on what happened. Well, it, it doesn't make any sense, first of all, 
the earth doesn't move from its pinions. Uh, but what does it say? It says that attention falling into a certain place of non-attention is set up for something like this to happen. And I don't, I can't explain it. I don't think it's explainable. It's sort of like, you know, when you study quantum physics and they tell you that a black hole mostly puts out electrons, but the theory allows that it could eject miatas and grand pianos, except that it would be very rare for it to eject a grand piano. But the theory does not preclude the ejection of grand pianos. So it's something like that, or it's a group hallucination, or it's a bewitchment, or, 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 and it begins to proliferate. I was thinking about it last night or this morning, because I was in that place where I saw it happen. And I was thinking, maybe, maybe Esalen lasts a really long time. Like maybe it's sort of like the Piazza San Marco in Venice or the central Aryan Stonehenge. Maybe we're actually starting something here that will last so long that for the next 5,000 years, people will relate to the Esalen Garden and that somehow it's a nexus for others on strange missions. Now, the other thing about that story that I like or that relieved me, as I guess the way to put it, is notice that it's absurd. And by being absurd, it's self-canceling. Suppose instead of a jackalope, which is an absurd creature to begin with, suppose it had been a gray of the wraparound eye type that are apparently uh, trading high technology to the government for uh, human fetal tissue, uh, those people, uh, then you would have had a real dilemma on your hands because greys are objects of cultural fascination. In other words, if you see a grey, you just become part of a statistical body of people who've seen one. And so it's like more problematic. It's not that it's a non-reality, it's that it's a sort of a non-reality. Uh, this is, I think, part of the clue to alien, to understanding alien abductions and the way we generate information. If I tell you that I was up late last night and couldn't sleep and walked along the cliffs over Esalen, and that I encountered a shining disk and that I then had an, uh, my navel lint was removed by a team of extraterrestrial cosmetologists. Uh, this is evidence for an already existing body of data. If you say, well, you should call MUFON, they'd be very interested in this, or you should call somebody else. If I tell you I was restless last night and walked the cliffs of Esalen and that I encountered uh, Bugs Bunny in the company of Patrick Swayze, people would just say, you're nuts. <laughs> you know, it's not sanctioned. It's not allowed. 
and nobody gives a hoot or takes it seriously for a moment because it serves no one's agenda. It's just insane data and should be immediately uh, tossed out. This shows us, you know, that the objects of, in the unconscious are given different weights. And you can tell a crazy story and join a self-help group, but if your story is too crazy, they won't have a group for you. They'll have a cell for you. Uh, so it's worth bearing in mind. Let's be generous here. Uh, 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 Someone had prepared a bunny with horns to surprise someone else with whom they'd had a lifelong running joke about jackalopes. And they had arrived at Esalen for the surprise birthday party of this person and realized that the bunny was frantic because it hadn't eaten on the long trip. So they took the jack-a-bunny in its cage down to the garden to steal some lattice for it. And in the fog and in the effort not to be seen, the bunny escaped with its horns in place. And this person, who probably didn't have a gate pass anyway, could see the whole situation getting out of hand and was frantically trying to capture the horned bunny and get it back in its... Um, see, people say, gee, what a party pooper this guy is. <laughs> well, yeah, but we're trying to save the laws of physics and reason here <laughs> for crying out loud. Uh, but I have to tell you, that doesn't feel right to what it is. It, it felt to me like... Uh, I don't know, we all live in private Idahos and somehow I was in somebody else's private Idaho for a moment against my will. But I think we should always prefer the simplest explanation. Sometimes the simple explanation, like in a case like that, is maddeningly complex in itself. But if you don't believe that's what's happened, well then what do you believe? Do you believe that mythological animals are a potential infestation problem in the Esalen Gardens? Uh, or just where do you draw the line? Uh, you know, if, if you want to know, like if you have a simple scientific question that you want to answer, like let's say here you have a wire and you want to know how much current is flowing through the wire, so you measure it with a voltage meter. And if you're doing it scientifically, you'll measure it a thousand times. Then you'll add those numbers together. Then you'll divide by a thousand. Then you get the voltage running through the line. Well, now, it's not uncommon when you carry out this procedure that 998 of your measurements will tell you that between four and a half and six volts are running through the line. But two of your thousand observations will tell you that uh, 75 watts in one case and in another 240 watts are running through the line. 
when a scientist looks at this series of measurements, the first thing they do is say, well, well, look, there are two anomalous measurements. Uh, Everything else was fluctuating between four and a half and six. These were way out of scale. Throw them out. Get rid of that. There's something wrong. That's bogus. Can't be. And then you get the voltage running through the line. Now, we do it in the sociological domain in the completely opposite fashion. Tonight, a thousand people or more, just I'm picking a number, will stare at the night sky and see what has always been there. Two people will see mile-long spacecraft with violet running lights and accompanied by strange music and a message for mankind. Now, what should we do with these two out of a thousand people? Should we put them on all prey? Should we rush their story to the cover of every tabloid outlet on Earth? Or uh, that's what actually happens. In other words, in the sociological world, we seek to amplify novelty because we're fascinated by it. But then we get false readings of reality because we've we've raised the you know we've made the novelty stand out too much. The fact is that information is a degradable medium, and it collapses into contradiction and absurdity often. Uh, You know, if you analyze your own conversation over a course of a day, uh, it's largely grunts and nods. Uh, We don't really engage for verbal communication all that much of our waking time, and yet we assume that we're doing it constantly. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I think reality is very slippery, very malleable. I think we're very naive about what information is and how it works. Uh, I've been interested in, as a lens for this phenomena, in crop circles. Crop circles are the con that will not die, you know. It will, it, no matter how many people come forward and admit that they've made them and fully confess, it's, the meme is launched. And, you know, tours go from L.A. to taking the, the cognoscenti of the city of angels to visit the crushed wheat of Devon and then draw conclusions from it. And, uh, uh, And yet, the phenomenon has been completely deconstructed uh, to the satisfaction of anyone interested in its deconstruction. It just turns out a lot of people aren't. Um, Well, extrapolating from the crop circle thing, the way reality seems to work is we have... a self-observing system of media, newspapers, television, so forth and so on, something strange happens. Uh, A block of ice falls in a field, a peculiar pattern in a crop, a frightened rural person has some kind of strange experience. The local press 
prints this, then people called stringers cull that local press environment for interesting stories. In other words, stories that people would be interested in in Argentina and Australia just for their weirdness and their human interest. So they carry then the the flying saucer, the block of ice, whatever it is, goes on to the Reuters network and UPI and this sort of thing. Well, then you and I, reading our daily dose of media, the New York Times, whatever it is, so you're reading, even the New York Times, page 43, one inch of print, uh, you know, it says, Hertfordshire, England, a block of ice was reported to have fallen on the home of Herbert Surrey. Well, so you think, oh, that's interesting. Uh, Let's see how my Adobe stock's doing. What's Dilbert up to? And you, in other words, uh, it's nothing to you. But, But of the millions of people who will read the New York Times, some few will say, aha, this dovetails with the astrological calculations I've been doing recently and my uh, uh, recent, and this theory I've had, and uh, this, this, this piece of data is important to the construction and maintenance of my worldview. So they uh, drive there, fly there, go there to this place. Well, now, the only other human beings who are interested in this phenomenon at this point are journalists. And journalists, God bless them, have to have a story. So if your editor says to you, a block of ice has fallen on a farmhouse in in Cheshire, go get the story. You drive out there, and of course, there's nothing... There's now a mud puddle, the block of ice, having been uh, bottled for its curative powers or whatever. And uh, there's nothing there. There's no story except that the person who resonated with the phenomenon has also arrived at the site. This is where the marriage in hell takes place. The press meets the nut over the corpus delecti of the anomalous event. And the press guy says, my God, we drove miles to get here. I'm on deadline. There's no story. There's no picture. Um, who are you? To the, to the person in resonance with me. Say, well, I'm Dr. So-and-so of the Advanced Institute of Auric Physics, uh, which I founded, and I've published uh, numerous books, all of which I self-published, and uh, I'm uh, very close friends with Terence McKenna and the Dalai Lama, <laughs> and, uh, and I know what's going on here. And say, so, okay, what's going on? Say well, this is uh, t- this is uh, cosmic retribution for our polluting of telluric energies, which are under the keeping of the elf kingdoms. And uh, until we begin to retract our emissions of sulfur, and and the guy is writing furiously, and then the story is amplified, 
and circulated again and again and again. And it begins to have implications for more and more people who are seeking evidence for some squirrely or peculiar viewpoint. In other words, it becomes a body of evidence. And then uh, there's no end to it. It sounds like an explanation for all organized religions. I don't distinguish. I think, I think you know, I was, uh, when the Heaven's Gate people exited the scene, I was amused by the tone of the rhetoric uh, in the press. It was all about um, how could people believe such a weird rap? Now, excuse me, I have to get uh, dressed for... Uh, Easter Midnight Mass, you know, we're, we're, we're celebrating the resurrection of uh, the Savior, uh, a, a minor Galilean politician uh, who became God uh, focuses my attention and I barely have time to cluck over the foolishness of the, the Heaven's Gate people. People are not playing by the same rules in all these areas. I mean, what or, is or it? Or with the same decks. Or with the same <laughs> decks, that's right. Uh, and, and so people say, you know, well, that's tried and true Christianity. What does that mean? A delusion grows more real over time? That's a peculiar uh, notion. Uh, you know, uh, Pliny the Younger there's a fascinating book published in the last couple of years called The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. Fascinating book, which uh, translates the early texts of the Roman Imperium as it slowly became aware that this strange phenomenon was in its midst. And Pliny the Younger, not the naturalist who was the elder, but Pliny the Younger was... Uh, appointed governor of Armenia and his job was to go out there and administer Roman law and so forth and he wrote extensive letters to the emperor who was his very good personal friend about the problems of administering this area and his letters back to the Roman administration are the first records we have of Christianity they were being oppressed. They were on some piece of land and some townspeople, they were like gypsies, I guess, and some townspeople had uh, moved them off this piece of land and they had petitioned to the governor for redress of grievances. And in the course of settling this, he had inquired of their beliefs. And then he, he wrote a letter uh, to the emperor and the emperor was quite interested and wrote back and said tell me more and he said is this a new religion and uh, and Pliny the Younger wrote and he said no this is not a religion uh, religions are concerned with the great issues of cosmic fate and cosmic destiny this is a cult of Christ it's a cult of personality and uh, this was actually the earliest take on Christianity by non-Christians. And I think, you know, examined fairly. I don't hear cult as the hammer word some people 
here, but uh, it is a clear distinction between religion. Religion is sort of the moral, the imperative branch of philosophy. You know, how you should live based on the nature of being and the world. A cult is just a squirrely bunch of ideas based on the power of some personality or some revelation. I don't know how we got off on to all of this. Probably Barry's evil <laughs> and manipulating influence in the background somewhere. Oh, well, what I... Yes, thank you for asking. See, I don't carry on this kind of debunking stance from a point of view of somebody who's never had these experiences. I have had these experiences. I mean, I've in, I, in my book, uh, The Invisible Landscape, I describe encountering a flying saucer right down to the point where I could see the rivets. But in a way, I, I saw too much or I kept my head because what I, I went through all the emotions of the standard UFO encounter. In other words, awe, paralysis, uh, acceptance that it was going to take me. Uh, but as it kept coming closer and closer and I saw more and more of it, I could finally see that it was in fact the end cap of a 1937 Hoover vacuum cleaner uh, that was about 45 feet across. And uh, some, if you're a flying saucer enthusiast, you know the famous George Adamski photograph of the debunked photograph that shows the end cap of a 1937 Hoover vacuum cleaner, which he suspended on monofilament line in his garage and then shot with his brownie. It's the famous flying saucer with the three half circles on the underside, the little round portholes, and the twiddle on top. I saw it. I saw it flying through the skies of the Amazon, going, whee, 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 whee. And as I saw it, I knew what it was. I knew that it was the, the, phony, the phony saucer. This, it, psychologists call this cognitive dissonance. What it is, and Jacques Vallée and other people have written about this, the encounter with the, with the UFO or with the other always has an element of self-canceling abs absurdity in it. If the witness can be fully honest and can give a full account of what happened, the story will not make sense. It never makes sense. And in my case, it didn't make sense on the spot. Now, my conclusion from that and from the encounter in the Amazon, and I guess this maybe goes to your question about supernormal power, there is something uh, loose on this planet, is that what I want to say, or behind reality, something. I, we could call it the unconscious, but that might make you feel more comfortable with it than you should. But what this power can do 
is it can manipulate your mind. And what it has access to is the complete contents of your experience. It has more access than you do. You, the ego, are a a fragile and forgetful creature. This thing, every movie you've ever seen, every television show you've ever watched, every headline you've ever glanced at, every, every face you've ever noticed in a crowd, it has it all. And when it sits across the board from you and the pieces are displayed, uh, it, it absolutely surrounds and encloses your mental universe and can uh, manipulate you any way it wants to because it knows you far better than you know yourself. Um, as an example of this, because it's very hard to catch this thing in action. It's, it's mercury sly, but not, it's not perfect. It's not godlike. It's just 99.8% able to do this trick without ever being nailed to the wall for it. Here's an example of the 0.02% where it failed. Uh, and you, if this seems to make no sense to you, you should read my book, True Hallucinations, in which the story I'm about to tell is embedded. But uh, my brother, to shorthand it catastrophically, went pretty bananas in the course of this expedition to the Amazon. And at one point he announced uh, that he was going to deliver a teaching that would, uh, I think this was the one which cured all disease. You, you only had to do this practice and all physical disease would instantly be cured. And he said, and so here's the practice, he said, picture the number eight, turn it on its side, slide the two circles together, shrink it to a point, close your eyes, and utter the mantra, please. Okay? <laughs> Sounds like it has a 30-40 chance of at least knocking back hay fever, right? So, uh, so this was at a point in this experience in the Amazon where he had been raving for days and days and just everybody was exhausted and uh, at their wits end. And But it was like a bolt of lightning to me because I remembered that three months before I had been in Canada having come from Japan and was getting ready for this Amazon expedition. And one of the things that I thought I should take care of since I'd been in Asia for a couple of years was I needed a dental checkup. So I made an appointment with this Canadian doc dentist and uh, went for this dental cleaning and arrived to find a, a waiting room full of people and settled down to a tall stack of tattered and incredibly tatty magazines among which was 
the Journal of the Canadian uh, Education Society, something like the parent-teacher magazine, but for Canada. And there was an article in there that said, uh, uh, this was 1971, shows you how things never change. There was an article about how computers will soon revolutionize elementary school teaching. And so, you know, in desperation, I turned to this article. And here's this article. You can imagine what it was saying. But there was this little sidebar next to the article. And it said, uh, the schools of the future will be nothing like we have known. Children will learn in completely different ways. And then it said, imagine little Susie sitting down in front of a computer screen visualizing the number eight, turning it on its side, sliding the two circles over each other and shrinking it to a point in order to command uh, an arithmetic operation or something like that. And it was like nailed, nailed. We know where this stuff is coming from. It's coming from our own minds. You know, he, he, if we want to blame my brother for this, had apparently a complete readout of all this detritus flowing around in my mind and could pick it up and use it at will to befuddle and confuse me and lead me deeper in. So the, when people say they have these encounters, the strangest thing about how we relate to the encounters is that we believe them. We take it at face value. If you told me, if you stopped me in the dining room this morning and told me that you had culminated an incredibly intense affair last night, I would not take that at face value. I would wonder at your motivation for revealing such an inter intimate detail of your life to someone you hardly know in the inappropriate venue of the Esalen dining room and without us having previously discussed your erotic proclivities at all. I would say to myself, what a weird thing. Why is this guy telling me this? In other words, I would not take it at face value. These encounter things people take completely at face value. And yet they are the most suspect accounts any of us produce. The people who have these experiences take it at face value. And then the people who listen to the experience take it at face value and say, well, let's go out and measure. Now, you say you were standing here and it came over the trees at this angle. So you say it was this, the size of a football, but the tree was in front of it. So that means by the rules of optics that it could have been no more than 15 feet across, no less than three feet across. In other words, they treat it like, like it's science. Like this is, we're supposed to, uh, you know, deconstruct this and find out the nature of the object. You wouldn't subject a dream to that kind of analysis. That would be absurd. Uh, these things are like dreams. We are dreaming most of the time. The idea that there is a shared reality 
the idea that you and I are living in the same universe, seeing the same things, walking on the same ground, is just a very high-level philosophical abstraction. It's very hard to prove it or even to convince yourself that it's so. We live inside worlds constructed by our language, our history, our expectations. And when the unconscious, for some reason, becomes, as the Jungians say, activated, it moves into that world and it uses the entire stage of being to, to send messages uh, back to you about, uh, about reality. And it's, it's an intelligence test, is what it is. It's an intelligence test. And if you take things at face value, for sure you failed the intelligence test. The, the, it's no game for the naive. Uh, based on foolishness or is it based on stupidity? Sometimes one, sometimes the other. If you can't help yourself, I guess it's stupidity. If you can help yourself and you make the mistake anyway, I guess it's foolishness. Uh, yeah. Is there any purpose to this? I mean, is it a personal thing? A personal cause? You mean, why is it doing this? Um, or for educating us? It seems like it's educating us. But in a funny, funny way. You, you know, if you read Jung on alchemy, Alchemy is, is like this. It's a paradoxical realm of, of symbol structures that seem to contradict themselves and myths that don't make any sense. And, but what it always is about, I think, is uh, dissolving assumptions. That's why the people who, who, who take it literally are, in a sense, victims of it because it was not to be taken literally. Uh, the, the intelligence test is failed. You know, the flying saucer enthusiasts love to say, I don't know what the number is, they keep pushing it up, but they say 35% uh, uh, of the American public believe flying saucers are real. Well, now, first of all, are we being asked to believe that 35% of the American public can carry on a coherent discussion of the concept real? <laughs> you know? As real as what? As real as Madonna's talents? As real as Clinton's integrity? How real are the UFOs? And to my mind, then, if 35% of the American public believe the UFOs are real uh, and they aren't real, then obviously the interesting population to interview is uh, the other people. What do they think? Well, the UFO people will say, oh, well, they just think they're weather balloons or they think that uh, it's uh, government aircraft or... No, no, don't let your opposition speak for itself. I'm in that larger percentage, and I don't think UFOs are weather balloons. I don't think they're government aircraft. Uh, obviously, all the interesting explanations lie on the side of that they are not what they uh, appear to be. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, 
where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, what do you think about Terence's rap about the possibility of the existence of some unknown power on the planet uh, that can manipulate your mind? That, well, at first I really wasn't listening all that closely, to be honest, but when he said that calling it the unconscious might make you feel uncomfortable, uh, more uncomfortable at least with it than you should, well, uh, that was when I realized that I was in the middle of listening to one of Terrence's poetic raps that so endeared him to us. It's a uh, really good example of why so many of us think of him as a bard. Now, one more comment about the talk that we just listened to, and then I've got an update on the Salon 2.0, as well as uh, a couple of other announcements. Now, while I've read and enjoyed all of the books that Terrence mentioned in this talk, two of them, uh, I think, uh, shouldn't be missed. One is The Long Trip, A Prehistory of Psychedelia, by Paul Devereaux, and the other is Entheogens and the Future of Religion, which was edited by Robert Forte. Both of those books, in my opinion, are, well, they're essential for any well-balanced psychedelic library. And uh, if you're more interested in videos than you are in books, then I've got a must-see documentary for you. It's the first of an episodic series titled Shamans of the Global Village, and uh, this first episode completely blew me away. I just uh, can't say enough good things about it. You know, I've read hundreds of books about psychedelics, and I've seen dozens of films dealing with that topic. But without any doubt in my mind, uh, Shamans of the Global Village is by far the best treatment of the psychedelic world that I've ever seen. I think that uh, this film series is going to be the new standard for what a high-quality production about psychedelics should reach for. The writing, editing, and uh, other production values are really top-notch. So if you go to www. and it's all one long word shamansoftheglobalvillage.com you can learn more about it. Uh, the first episode actually features Octavio Reddig and his work with the Sonoran Desert Toad. And while I thought that I already knew quite a bit about uh, what is commonly called toad venom and about 5-MeO-DMT, I have to admit that uh, compared to what I learned from this documentary my previous information was uh, not only quite sparse, but I think a lot of it was probably uh, pretty incorrect as well. Now, this first episode of the series is uh, available at the official site to stream for $4 and uh, to download uh, with nearly an extra hour of content for $10. But they're hoping to roll it out for free for a week, anyhow, starting October 1st. So uh, surf on over to shamansoftheglobalvillage.com, and I'm sure that you're going to be happy that you did. Another thing that I'd like to pass along is that this past week, I had an interesting conversation with Noah Lampert, who hosts the Synchronicity Podcast, which touches on experiences and concepts that uh, often go overlooked. And during our conversation, Noah asked me to mention any recent synchronicities in my life, but at the time I didn't really recall any. However, uh, day before yesterday, when I listened to his introduction of our interview, he mentioned the fact that Bruce Damer had just been on the Duncan Trussell podcast, and he also mentioned a podcast by Zach Leary featuring Tony Moss. Well, I don't know if this is actually a synchronicity, but both Bruce and Tony are dear friends of mine. In fact, uh, Bruce called me uh, as he was driving down to Duncan's studio for his interview, and uh, a day or so before that, I'd actually listened to Zach's interview with Tony. 
Now, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you're already familiar with Bruce Namer. But if you don't already know Tony Moss, uh, then I highly recommend that you listen to his interview with Zach Leary. Tony is one of my all-time favorite people, and uh, if you're a Unix geek, then <laughs> then you know what I mean when I say that I'd trust Tony with my root password any day. And uh, I'll link to both of those podcasts in today's program notes, uh, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. Okay, uh, so do you want to know what I was doing with my time last week instead of doing a weekly podcast? Well, thanks to longtime saloner and charter subscriber to our forums, Dan M., I began investigating some of his suggestions for building the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And after taking a look at its competition first, I came back to Dan's suggestion of experimenting with Slack.com. That's S-L-A-C-K.com. Now, I'm not going to geek out on you here today. I'll save that for the forums and on Slack. But the headline is that, well, Slack appears to be able to provide me with a single place to go to keep up with messages that our fellow saloners are sending to me in, well, in regards to many things, but basically in regards to the evolution of the salon. So once we get this all set up, messages that I get from email, Twitter messages, LinkedIn messages, Skype messages, and all the rest of them will uh, not only be in a single place for me to find, but Slack also provides an archive that is searchable. So uh, then I won't have to try and remember where I first saw something or where I filed it. Uh, plus, even though I'm not on Facebook myself, uh, posts from there can also be incorporated into our Slack team as well. So if you want to become involved in this project yourself, and uh, I'm not talking just about geeks here, because our Slack team, initially at least, is going to be just brainstorming ideas about how to best turn over control of the salon as a platform for the community itself. And I don't see this as uh, necessarily a simple task. My guess is that it's going to take uh, several years of first me and then a group of individuals making a lot of the decisions, uh, at least until we can come up with a good way to automate it as much as possible. But if you want to become involved in this uh, ongoing discussion, well, you can request an invite to the Psychedelic Salon 2.0 Slack team by going to Psychedelic Salon 2.0. That's all one word, lowercase, Psychedelic Salon number 2, number 0, dot sign up, dot team, and uh, enter the information there that's requested. Over time, I expect our group to break into sub-teams that are dealing with specific topics, uh, topics that need to be answered as we move forward. For example, before we can automate our processes using blockchain technology, it seems to me that we first have to be able to know a little something about the uh, people that we're dealing with. Because, uh, let's face it, while there are hundreds of thousands of fellow saloners, my guess is that a few of them may not have our best interests at heart. You see, I've been around long enough to have seen the U.S. surveillance state infiltrate uh, just about every organization you can imagine. Just search on COINTELPRO to get an idea of what can and currently is being done to subvert perfectly legitimate organizations. And while what we do will all be transparent and public, it could also be possible for key volunteers to uh, kind of throw a monkey wrench in the works and bring our little experiment and community to a quick end. So, uh, how do we know whom we're dealing with these days? Let's say that you're at a festival, and as a member of the Salon 2.0 community, you have an app on your phone that you can use to exchange some information with a stranger you meet there. And that app gives both of you a list of people that you have a common connection to. 
Now, uh, if that new person you meet happens to also have a connection to me, uh, well, what can that mean? Well, it may mean only that this person and I have exchanged a couple of emails. But maybe uh, that new person you meet uh, was also the guy that was with me uh, one night when we were both high on acid and running through a Mexican jungle with the Federales after us. Now, which of those two people would you trust the most? Well, at first glance, you might think it would be the guy in the jungle. But what if that little app also told you that I was warning people to stay away from the jungle man because, well, I thought he was crazy and a danger to everybody around him. (laughs) Now do you see the difficulties involved in establishing a level of trust? And why, you may ask, is trust so important, especially if we're going to keep everything transparent anyway? Well, in a way, uh, trust isn't actually as important as lack of trust, suspicion. On more than one occasion, I've seen people uh, shunned because they were thought to be narcs, when in fact they were, well, they're just shy people who were new to our events. And as a result, we probably missed the opportunity to welcome someone who might have become a great friend to our community. So if we can eliminate unfounded suspicions about new people we meet, I think that uh, maybe things can move along much more smoothly. Anyway, uh, working out the mechanics of building such an app is one of the challenges that volunteers for the 2.0 version of the salon are going to be solving. And if you have any ideas about how to solve this and other issues involved in organizing a self-sustaining online community of like-minded people, well, I hope that you'll take the time to join in our organizing discussions. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.